Welcome to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. In this episode, you'll hear me, Jenny Scholick, in conversation with artistic director and principal choreographer Helgi Thomason and principal dancer Joseph Walsh about the role of Oberon in George Balanchine's A Midsummer Night's Dream. This episode was recorded on April 1st, 2020, following the suspension of all of San Francisco Ballet's 2020 repertory performances, including uh, the run of A Midsummer Night's Dream. That means that both Helgi and Joe called in from their respective homes where they are sheltering in place in order to have this conversation. It was a real pleasure to get to hear both of them speak about the role of Oberon and about dancing in George Balanchine's ballet. And we all look forward to seeing A Midsummer Night's Dream back on stage in the 2021 season. I hope everyone is safe and healthy at home, and I hope you enjoy this podcast. All right. Well, I'd love to just um, start kind of really big picture um, with a question for both of you, which is, do you remember when you first saw Balanchine's Midsummer Night's Dream and what your impression of the ballet was then? Well, I can start with that saying, I truly don't remember. Uh, Being that, you know, when I was dancing with New York City Ballet, the repertory was so big that there were Balanchine and Robbins ballets all the time. And I just don't remember when I saw it for the first time. But when I saw it, I liked it. (laughs) (laughs) I liked it a lot. Um, I can say that I, my first time seeing it was actually when we were rehearsing it in the studio. I had not um, seen it live. Uh, I'd only seen videos of it. Uh, so I first began to get to know it through seeing it without an audience, really, you know, seeing it kind of just as, as, a, as like a work of dance. And then not until we were doing those filmings for the streaming um, a couple weeks ago, did I get to see it from out front for the first time? And that was a really beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah, it is a beautiful ballet. Yeah. So uh, for both of you, again, um, do you recall when you learned that you would be dancing the role of Oberon specifically and kind of what went through your mind um, when you learned that? Joseph, why don't you start with that one? <laughs> well, uh, I, I learned it the first day that it went up on, uh, on the schedule. And I figured out that I was going to have to start um, getting my stamina into, sh- into shape. Uh, while uh, after watching the first video and realizing how difficult the role really was. Um, and kind of coming to grips with... Uh, a different version of uh, Midsummer's that I'd never seen before. Uh, I'd, I'd grown up with like Ashton or some other versions. It was one of the first things I did in, in a ballet school, you know, as like a community theater kind of thing uh, where I played puck. But that was basically my, my understanding of Oberon was just that it was an extremely difficult role. <laughs> Well, my recollection is that 
which was sort of typical of the New York City ballet, that ballet masters or mistresses would come to you and say, oh, you're supposed to learn this role. And at that time, it was not uncommon that the other principal who had danced the role would teach it to you. <clears throat> In this case, it was Eddie Valella. So uh, I learned it from him. And, um, you know, it was, <clears throat> I knew it was hard. Uh, stamina-wise, particularly, but uh, the interesting thing was, you would work on it once you learned the step. You would work on it maybe on your own, and then, which was typical New York City ballet, before we put the ballet on the stage, let's say two days before it opens, that's when Balanchine was there, and looking at it. So, you know, that's when he had his sort of through his two cents at you and say, do this or do that more or, or move over there more or, or whatever. But he was not so much involved in teaching that, me, that particular role. Other roles, yes, but not that one. Wow. So, um, it, it was that kind of a format. We, we learned from one another and uh, then Balanchi tend to see it a day or two days before it opened. Wow, <laughs> that's, that's crazy. I, I had no idea. So was he... Was he always kind of like that for many ballets or was it just specifically Midsummers that he was kind of like that? Well, I, I can tell you a good example. For instance, that uh, during the Stravinsky Festival, uh, he choreographed, one of the ballets he choreographed was Beza de la Fe, where he um, had choreographed the ballet and Patty McBride and myself were the lead in the, in the ballet. Yeah. Uh, I did not have a solo, and I thought, well, that's too bad. I would have loved to have a solo. But <laughs> it's not weeks later, before we opened, of course, the festival, that something came up on the board. You know, Helge Balanchine, pianist, needed a certain time. And uh, I was there in the studio, and he said, well, I found some music, and um, maybe I will do something. So he choreographed this incredible solo. Uh, in an hour and 20 minutes. And I could barely keep up with him, remembering the steps and things. And he didn't change very much as he was choreographing it. He was said, do this or do that. No, well, yeah, keep that in or whatever. Um, end of an hour and 20 minutes, he said, well, let's see it. And I said, okay, give me five minutes. I need to just remember in my head what I have to do. <laughs> so I danced the solo. And he said, okay, okay, good, you, you work on it. And he did not see that we danced this until the day before the premiere. Wow. <laughs> so I worked on it. And um, the day before the premiere, we were on stage and, you know, and then he looked at it and said, good, very good. And that was it. <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, wow. he... He was so good at choreographing for dancers what suited them and what made them look really great. And also he has a lot of trust in you. So like he said, you know, you work on it and that was it. Yeah. It's fascinating. You know, so, I've, I felt that initially coming into the company, um, into San Francisco Ballet, was the, the feeling from you of giving me like instilling the the trust in myself a little bit of being able to know that 
after you'd seen it and put your stamp of approval on it that I felt comfortable dancing a role um, to the point to the point where it's like yeah if I need to rehearse it on my own a little bit to feel more comfortable or something like that or if I need to ask you uh, how to get to a point in the role that I, would make me feel more comfortable I know that I have that ability with you to kind of find that I think with Balanchine, it was very much like um, when he choreographed something on you, he would really be very specific what he wanted and, you know, tilting of the head or the arm or whatever. But then after that, he left you alone. So now it's up to you to take that, what you used to sometimes say, the gift I've given you. You work on it and you make it your own. And I think that's a wonderful way to do it because, you know, there was no overcoaching or anything like that. It was just, here it is, you dance it, you do with what, what you think is right. Wow. I love that. Yeah. So uh, that's, that was not unusual with a lot of other ballets that I danced uh, and learned, you know, for this repertoire. Um, so wait, I had a, I had a question, Helgi. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. Um, so kind of along the same lines, did when Balanchine would rehearse a role, would it always be separately, like different casts um, at like one at a time or like would he ever rehearse a role together to make changes and then kind of like separate it afterwards? It's a very good question because usually in most cases, he, he was only one cast. Hmm. Whoever he choreographed, that particular ballet for that was the cast and they did it forever now then maybe later on another couple was told to learn it and he would be sort of overseeing that when we were working on it and he would say well i know so and so does it this way but i'm going to change it for you because this looks better for you and, and with myself and patty or Kelsey or whoever it was so he would make slight adjustments but once there were two couples, let's say, learning or dancing the same ballet, I don't remember very much of being in rehearsal that you go first and then we will go. It was just mm -hmm. individual couple. So they were so not. Then it was... and, and again, there was so. He choreographed for the people, if you did, let's say, Basin de la Faye, for instance. No one danced that ballet for years. That's how it was. It was just years. Yeah. Like, same thing with, uh, with uh, Dances at a Gathering with Robbins. You know, yes, it was done on Villela, but he opted out of it after a very short time. So I was put in it, and I danced that role for years before anybody else started dancing it. I mean, I'm talking years. Yeah. And well, so that was kind of my, my follow-up question was like, what was it like um, breaking into the roles that had um, either original cast or like members that had more seniority initially when you were joining the company? And kind of like, was it, uh, were you having to like prove something or were you kind of just like um, no. fitting, fitting into a mold that <clears throat> made it work out? Um, I can think of one specific, uh, Tarantella, the part of the, 
That was Valella, and uh, I think it was Patty McBride that it was originally done for, so far as I remember. And then I was told to learn it and dance it. I knew Eddie thought it was extremely difficult stamina-wise. And I thought, my God, how am I going to get through this? <laughs> He's a very good, strong dancer. Uh, and then I learned it. I danced it. And the interesting thing, I said, this wasn't so hard. Not as hard <laughs> as that. But, you know, it was, again, you, you just make it your own. I knew I was not the same kind of a dancer as, as Eddie. I was not going to try to emulate him or copy him. Be who you are. And that's another way of showing what that Tarantella powder should look like. You can right or wrong. I mean, you just, you do it what you think. You're being taught the steps, all that by a ballet master or masters. Or in this case, I think maybe watching Eddie Bellella or there was someone else. I think it was, um, might have been John Clifford, I think, but I'm not sure. I knew it was Eddie who did most of them. And, um, you know, you just, you practice and you, you build up your stamina and you did it and the way you dance and that was it. Yeah. And, and, you know, that, that kind of feeling of making it your own also creates the ability to, to make the stamina work in your favor. Right. So like when, when I would ask you certain questions about Oberon about like, okay, so how much effort should I put into this entrance? Because I feel like I'm using, especially it was like, I think two nights before opening mm -hmm. and we had a rehearsal together in the big studio and it was suddenly I had like way too much space. There was no one else in there and I was dying. And, uh, and you kind of were just like, no, when you're in the corner and your, your hands are on your knees and you're, you're panting, that's what you need to do. You know, that's the, that's the moment that you need to take because there's really not a rest step in that solo no, there isn't. yeah so to try and uh, adjust it accordingly is uh it's just kind of impossible so it's really just building it up and like convincing yourself you have the stamina yeah and and the interesting thing is once you're out there i don't know what happens you you find the stamina you find mm -hmm. the strength to do it because mm -hmm. first of all it's a wonderful music to dance to great choreography and at least I can speak for myself you know I was having fun I was having fun with it I loved it even though it was hard but it, it, it was very satisfying at the same time yeah it is a it's a magical kind of feeling that you get when you get to be in a role that has you know the story behind it and the kids out there and all of that it really like pushes you beyond what you think is possible. And I remember it was fun having those little children around. I don't know what it was. <laughs> you know, it was magical. It was in the forest and the... Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna pop in for a yeah. second. I have so many questions I wanna follow up on. Um, all right. Let's, because we were just there, um, a sort of technical question about working with all the kids, um, which is, you know, that, that scherzo, right? There are just dozens of children on stage and you're working with and around them. 
how much, um, either at New York City Ballet or here in San Francisco, how much time do you actually get with those kids before you get on stage? And how does it change um, dancing that role? Like, how different is it once they get in the studio with you versus, you know, learning it in that big empty studio? Uh, speaking from, again, experience with New York City Ballet, um, I would say maybe one or two rehearsals, and that was it. Yeah, I had um, I had watched more rehearsals of other Oberons dancing with the kids than I had actually done myself, which helps uh, almost just as much because you're really you're you're getting to plan it out in your head, um, but. Um, more so I just had like jealousy that people were able to, <laughs> to like get in, in, in there and feel it. And like, I could tell that they were having a lot more fun in the role. Um, so once we were on stage, those were, uh, I had one rehearsal, not in costume. And I think the kids were kind of just being placed around. So it wasn't even a full run through. We were just kind of, it was like a tech rehearsal and then the dress rehearsal. And those are my only two goes with the kids and, uh, for the most part, I was just like terrified that I was going to be in the head initially, but then eventually I got to a place where it felt more like they were, you know, it was a part of the choreography and I could understand where everyone was about to move and trust myself that I wasn't actually going to be out too, too outrageous. <laughs> And then going back, um, you were both talking about the stamina required for this part, you know, and it's um, a role that is uh, known for being really, really challenging um, technically and in terms of stamina. Can you talk, um, you know, for maybe an audience member who's not a dancer, who doesn't really understand the technicalities of it, can you talk about what is it that makes that role as challenging as it is? I think, uh, speaking for myself, it's very uh, fast dancing. So you are constantly jumping or, or, or turning, but a lot of jumping. A lot of um, uh, the diagonal when he starts with the, the scherzo is, it's a, it's a season going forward, you leap forward, and the right leg is in front of you in this case, and the left leg is behind you. But before you land, you have, to, you have to beat those legs together before you land, which at that speed is really difficult. And you have to get, do like five or six of them in a row and then go to the other side again. And right after that, you have to start jumping almost backwards um, with your legs underneath you so i mean it's just choreographically it's um it's tricky but because of the speed of the music and the choreography you 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 feel that if you don't push you're going to be behind the music and you're not going to be able to do the step very well so it, it's that you're driven by that that beat in the music you have to be with it and uh, and it's fast it really is fast. It's very unusual to do that uh, C song with beats in a, in a variation uh, that fast. Yeah. 
I, I agree with everything Helgi's saying. Uh, I mean, basically, yeah, the only reason that it's possible for me is because somebody else has done it before me. I don't, you know, it's one of those roles that I see and it's like, um, it looks so, it's like such a feat um, to kind of overcome that the only way I could um, really figure it out was going simple step-by-step adding beats to things that I normally wouldn't add beats to. Um, and, and really just, yeah, letting the music um, be the, be the guide for how things have to happen because otherwise I wouldn't move that fast. Um, so the only thing that I can really relate it to in terms of stamina is probably, um, like vertiginous thrill of exactitude, something that was choreographed so much later, but, um, you know, by Forsyth. And it's something that by the end of the Oberon solo, when you're going diagonally with the coupe jets and the pirouettes, um, I felt no, no feeling in my forearms, no feeling in my calves. <laughs> and I, and I was suddenly just like going off of, um, muscle memory, uh, and it's kind of it kind of feels like you're dancing blind in that moment because you're so tired. And yet, the, choreographically, what is so wonderful about the scherzo for the opera is it gives a very fleeting feeling that you are really f- flying from one end of the stage to the other in, within the forest and, and, the, mm-hmm. and the children's bugs. So you get the feeling that this is very magical. It's uh, it's sort of a make believe. It's a storytelling. So on that idea of storytelling, you know, we've talked a lot about now, you know, sort of the technical aspects, but you're also telling a story, right? Oberon is a character. He has interactions with um, Puck, with Titania, with the lovers. So can either of you or both of you speak a bit about the character of Oberon and kind of how you understand um, that character and his relationships to other people in the ballet. I always felt that uh, Oberon was sort of king of the forest. This was his domain. All those bugs, all uh, Huck, they will do anything that he um, commands them to do. And it's only when he runs into Titania and he wants the child that he's rejected. And he says, no, you cannot have the child. That he gets upset and say, I will, I will get you. You know, this is not finished. So it was, it was that kind of a feeling that it was um, like, even when you come in for the first time and you survey all the children and, and they, they rise up and you, you, it's like you point to them and they pull, they pull up on the floor. It's like you are magically telling them what to do. So it's, it's a storytelling in that way. Um, the story between Titania and Oberon, uh, <laughs> well, obviously they live apart. Let me put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, yeah, I mean, I agree with all the, basically the, the biggest help was 
honestly, Helgi just coming up and being like, you know, you, you're the king of the forest. Like you have to really commit in that moment of walking out on the stage with a cape on, with a crown on, with kids, you know, everyone's holding your cape and people are bowing down to you. It's a really exaggerated version of, you know, who we are every day that uh, you just have to kind of embrace being in that world and the the setting that Balanchine creates like really allows that um, to happen. Um, in terms of the mime, I found it so difficult initially to kind of inject that story into it because I was really focusing on like, am I on the right music? And am I doing, you know, am I, am I walking around the right way? Am I picking up the child the right way? Um, that it wasn't until I watched an old video that we had on our system of, um, it was like an old recording of Eddie Villela doing it. And it was just a few days before we opened. And I just finally was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to watch this again. I haven't watched it for a while. And I saw that he was really just like taking the time and kind of, um, it was a really honest way of um, delivering the, the mime that I hadn't really thought about doing. And so then I just kind of, I went up to Sandy, the, the woman that was setting it on us. Um, and I told her, you know, I'm just gonna try and like ease it out a little bit and not necessarily hit the, hit the counts like exactly. And like, let me know how, what you think. And after I did that one rehearsal on stage, she was like, yeah, I think that's better. Like keep, keep with that. And it was just, it was more finding the, finding the, um, the script in my own head uh, which took a lot longer for me for this ballet for some reason than some others. But I think it's really just because of how, how, um, yeah, difficult the story pattern is to follow between the Titania and like, why am I with this changeling and all, you know, all of these kinds of little aspects of such an older story that, um, took me a while to kind of find my own way, but. It's really interesting, actually, Joe, that you say that because in um, Edward Valella's memoir, he writes about learning this part when Balanchine made it on him and says that he found the mime really, really challenging, that particularly um, at that time at New York City Ballet in 1962, they weren't doing a whole lot of story ballets. He wasn't really experienced with ballet mime and that actually Stanley Williams came in and coached him on the mime to help him figure it out because Lincoln Kirstein came backstage and said, Eddie Valella is going to ruin this ballet. If you don't uh, <laughs> figure out, if you don't help him figure out how to be the king of the forest and do the mime. So I, um, I find it really interesting that you also kind of had some difficulty with it. Helgi, did you find that challenging when you took on the part or was that something that you felt came a little more easily? Uh, no, I had no problem with it because as a dancer starting out in Copenhagen, I worked at the pantomime theater mm. where we were taught all the comedy della arte, you know, mime, and how you use that on stage. So for me, it, it just became natural. And when you mentioned Stanley Williams, who was a Danish a dancer from the Royal Danish Ballet, 
who had come to New York to teach at the School of American Ballet, um, I thought immediately of him. He, he must, I'm pretty sure I wasn't there at that time, but I was sure that Stanley would have helped uh, Eddie with that because uh, for the Danish uh, Bornemill repertory, they used so much of that mime that it, it was natural for him. But I had no problem with it, no. You know, Maybe my experience as a, as a young dancer. You know, I didn't really find any comfort in it until we had an audience. And suddenly after I heard the reactions of the audience during that pantomime, did I really, it really clicked into place like, oh, well, that's what lands and that's what makes, that's what makes sense to the audience and that's what they read. And so like, as, as long as I was landing some sort of reaction from the audience, it, it kind of sealed the deal when I was like, okay, maybe I made the right decision here, or whatever it was. But um, I had, because I hadn't seen it live, I didn't really have that connection or that kind of history to it. I think also when you do mime like that, you cannot think of it as gestures that you use your arms to convey. You have to, in your own head, have to talk. You have to say the sentence in your own head first so you understand what, what it is. And from that speaking, not loudly, but silently to your own head, you, you, the gesture, the mind will come out so much better. Yeah. More believable rather than think, oh, this is a gesture, this is... This, I do this on, on count six or then the seven. It doesn't work like that. And that's why when you said you had to find your own, how can I say, your own rhythm of, of speaking that uh, mime. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody's slightly different. So I, that's how I would approach it. Talk the sentence in your head and then say it with your, your, your hands and your face and whatever but in your own way, rather than approach and say, well, on, on, on count three or four, I do this and this and that, that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I will say it also helped that in the um, overture, the whole pantomime plays out. And so I would go back into the back area of the, of the stage and just with my cape, make sure that I knew exactly when it was happening and what to do. So I could do it all without, um, without the pressure of uh, the kid there and why, why there, and, you know, all of that, that stuff that happens when you're actually in the moment and just do it on my own. And, and it helped a lot. Oh, distraction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's So I know that this is a question uh, that Joe also had for you, Helgi, but can you talk a little bit about what made you decide to bring this ballet back after so long into the repertoire? Sure. Uh, <laughs> it's a good question because I had meant to bring it, this ballet back several years ago. and. Um, First of all, I don't remember, I honestly don't remember what costumes we had when I did it first year over 30 years ago. I'm sure it was not, we never could borrow anything from New York City Ballet. 
So either we had made something that maybe had just deteriorated or it was no good anymore. I think they probably co-produced it with Seattle, I would imagine. And so for a long time, there were no costumes available. And then Marty Patladinas redesigned the ballet for Seattle Company. And I, you know, I, it was made available to me if I wanted to to rent it. I always wanted to bring it back. It was just a question when. And and, and I think it's funny how things sometimes work out. I think bringing it back now, meaning last season, we had all the right people for it. So not to say that we would not have had the right people before, but I think. Sometimes things work out like that, that all the operant, all the Titanians, all the, the part of the people, it, they were just all, they were right for it this time around. And it showed the company's fantastic dancing, the depth in the company, the talent there is here. Um, so uh, I'm just glad I did it and it, it was seen and we have to bring it back for the next season. It's I'm planning to do. And to not to mention that the fact that there were, you know, only two casts that were seen because of what the situation that we're in. And yeah. I was sat in amazement every day watching a cast that I had no idea existed of, of these other parts. You know, uh, there were five full casts ready to go and they were ready to go. We yeah. were, you know, so it'll be lovely to bring it back and show the audience what we, what we, uh, had planned. So um, you said something, Helgi, that I wanted to follow up on, that you had kind of all the right people to do the ballet right now. You had the Oberons, you had the Titanias. So maybe specifically thinking about Oberon, what are you looking for in a dancer to take on that part? What are those qualities that are really needed? Well, first of all, uh, you have to have great technique to be able to uh, uh, meet the challenge of that variation, the scherzo. And it has to be in such a way that, uh, how can I say, you you have to be so on such a high level as a dancer that the technical aspect of it is not going to overwhelm you. That you will just once you get into it and rehearse it and work on it, that it becomes like a second nature. All of a sudden, you you are you are telling a story. You're you're being Oprah instead of saying, "Oh my God, can, can I do this? That step is so hard, or am I going to make that?" It, that's very very important that I have dancers of that caliber, and I do have that. And it's uh, and like Joe said, it's amazing how many casts of those leading roles there are available in this company. Yeah, to that, to that kind of like side of things, it's the, when you said kind of just embrace you're, you're telling the story as opposed to like, Oh no, what, what's going to happen in that step? Or can I, can I accomplish that? Uh, I'll say like in the season that we've just had, we had, you know, etudes, almost you know like a a rep before where i do feel like that i it's such a stripped down 
um, revealing version of like classical ballet that I get out there and I'm, I'm like way more nervous than I am for things that even though Oberon is actually technically harder, I think, um, in like a real sense of like being able to do certain steps, uh, I felt way more comfortable just knowing that I had that story behind me to push me through. Uh, and it helps me dance better in a way because it, it kind of takes your mind off of things. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think, you know, um, etudes and another one I can think of is Valentin's um, theme in variation for instance mm -hmm. it's so technically challenging and in a beautiful classical way but you're also so exposed that if something doesn't work everybody in the audience knows it <laughs> <laughs> there's no hiding it <laughs> but somehow in, in, in midsummer like you say, because there's a story behind it, you're telling a story. And as you're dancing it, you feel you're, you're carrying that story. So you can always, if something doesn't work as well as you would like to, I think it's not going to be so obvious to an audience as etudes or theme and variations. Mm -hmm. All right. So I think we've gotten through kind of all of my sets of questions, or at least a good number of them. Do you guys have any last questions for each other before we sign off today? Well, Helgi, in, kind of in, in line with that last question, did you, specifically for Oberon, or you can talk about other, other roles, but did you get nervous before every show of Oberon, or was it like kind of every run of Oberon? Um, and it, did it depend on how often you would perform something? Uh, I think I can honestly say there was always nerves in there. Um, because you, you want it to be the best you can make it. And, you know, am I going to come up to that challenge tonight? Am I going to be what I want it all to be? So there was always that nerves behind it. but. It never, I'm going to say, um, it had never affected me in the sense, such a way that I, it, it all fell apart. You know? <laughs> there, there are dancers who have a very hard time sometimes dealing with the pressure being on stage. And, and Joe, you know this too. You've seen dancers who are, wonderful in the studio or in class and all that but when they get on stage they get so nervous that it almost affects their own dancing mm -hmm. um it's it's sad when that happens but it occasionally does but what i'm saying i think it's good to have some nerves before you go on mm -hmm. it's 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 an adrenaline that sort of gives you energy and, and purpose of wanting to do it better than you did last time. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's something that, um, you know, I felt all the time being that role or being theme and variation or whatever, you know. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because you, uh, in that same vein of, you know, it's a role that you've danced and you coming up to me before a show or something, especially this one, it was this, this role in Brown Boy, uh, especially because, you know, you're starting 
you're you're the first person on, to walk on stage and it's kind of a it's a nerve-wracking moment but to have you um give me the comfort of knowing that it's it's been done and that the, this is you kind of give me like a cue almost like um things to kind of focus on rather than the pressure involved um and for Oberon you gave me a few of those but then all, there was also this this kind of thing happening in the back you know we we had literally just had the mayor send out a message to the city about what was going to happen and it kind of turned that performance into this bizarre like beautiful space to live in for that two hours because I kind of felt this coming in a way and knowing that you were there to watch it and that we were kind of bringing this back after 30 years and that there was all of this normally what would have been pressure or something that would have made me feel nervous in the wrong way actually gave me strength and like a the power to do something do a premiere that i'd never debuted the role and feel like i was at home in it so i thank you for that comfort and making it feel special I'm yeah sure you, yeah i don't have any well, questions I, <laughs> I was gonna say i feel like that's a pretty good place uh and note to end on if that works for you guys what do you think anything yeah. any last thoughts no i think that's good yeah uh, this has like been so great to get away for for a little bit from what we're what we're in and just talk about something and learn so much from you huggy it's really great well thank you joe well i can't wait to see you out there again as oberon so hang in there we have to get through this time. We were going to go, we will be back. Yeah. Thanks for listening to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. For more podcasts and other audience engagement programs, check out sfballet.org or your favorite podcast player.